Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of our new podcast, Total BS. I am your co-host, Bennett Sullivan. I'm along with the other co-host, Mason Bola. Mason, how are you doing today? Uh, you know, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just uh, trying to watch as much basketball as possible as his first day of March Madness in two years. So I'm pretty excited. Speaking of March Madness, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Maybe go into some NFL free agency, some uh, European soccer, and maybe finish it off with some NBA. But let's start with the big dance. How are you feeling about it just being back? I mean, I'm excited. I remember just sitting in high school, even middle school, with your phone on your lap watching the games. And then even last year, when it got canceled, that whole March where you're quarantined, there's nothing to do. And the whole time I'm like, oh, we could have had March Madness basketball. It's just something about March and March Madness that just makes the month amazing. And I just can't wait to have it back and to fill out brackets because I love filling out brackets. And who doesn't? Literally no one. And then if you're good at it, it's even more fun. The steal of money for people who don't watch basketball, good times. So speaking anyway, of brackets, who do you have to win it all? It's tough, right? Because I really want a Big Ten team to win it. And I really don't want Gonzaga to win because I don't want a team to ever, ever go through a season perfect ever again. Because the last team to do it was Indiana in 1976. So I can't pick Gonzaga. Of all the Big Ten, I think Illinois is the hottest team right now. So I'm, I'm rolling with them. Interesting, because I'm going with a team that just took a tough loss in the Big 12 championship game, because I think after that loss to Oklahoma State and Cade Cunningham, Baylor is going to bounce back and win it all. I think Baylor's a really good team, but I also think Baylor got absolutely screwed with placement. Uh, Wisconsin is a four seed. UNC is a five seed. And they're the eight, nine matchup winner plays Baylor. Then they had to play, in reality, Purdue, because Villanova doesn't have a point guard and Purdue's not going to lose to North Texas or Winthrop. So I don't know about that one. I think that Purdue can win, but I still think there's a chance that Winthrop. I don't have them in my bracket, but I think there's a chance. But you can say the same thing with Illinois in the Midwest because Oklahoma State is not a four seed. Houston, Houston is a two seed, but they're one of the better two seeds. You got San Diego State, who's been really, really hot. And then you have a Loyola Chicago team that I think will surprise a lot of people and I think could upset Illinois. There's a lot of good teams in the Midwest, but none of those teams are as good as the teams in the South. And the other thing, too, about Houston is that I don't think they're going to get past Clemson or Rutgers. Uh, I think that <laughs> Rutgers is a dangerous, dangerous team right now. I think that Clemson is underseeded, and I don't think Houston is as good as everybody says. Plus, that is another upset I've been going back and forth on. Is the uh, Sorry for interrupting, but is the Clemson-Houston. I think Clemson will win that game, but I don't know if Houston is going to be able to beat Clemson or even if Rutgers wins that game. I don't know if they're going to be able to get past either of those two teams. Here's the thing, too, that I think is going to be interesting to watch. Every... Every so often we get a 215 upset. And I think that this Houston Cleveland State is the perfect 215 for this season. Not only do these teams have the same exact play style, but Cleveland State can shoot the hell out of the ball. And Houston's coach, Kelvin Sampson, is the former coach at Indiana. This game is at Assembly Hall, and he is his first game back since ruining that program. I don't think it's going to go well for him. I think they'll win, but it's going to be close, and they will not beat Rutgers or Clemson. I have Rutgers, but I don't think they'll beat Rutgers in the second round. I think Houston's going down early and down hard. So then let's move into the final four. Who do you have in your final four? I got Illinois, obviously, and then I have I, I'm rolling with Arkansas out of the South over any of those teams, including Baylor and Purdue and Wisconsin or Ohio State. I think that Arkansas is a sneaky, sneaky good team. 
led by Justin Smith, a grad transfer. He does everything for that team. Averages 35 minutes a game, 12 boards, 18 points. Fantastic player. I think that they're going to get a little bit of luck with upsets so they don't have to play Baylor in the Elite Eight, and I think that they're going to roll on through. In Gonzaga's region, I'm very tempted just to pick Gonzaga all the way there, but I don't think they're going to win. I actually got Kansas going on a sneaky run all the way to the Final Four. And then lastly, the East, I think the only team that has a chance at beating Michigan is LSU. I don't think they can do it. So I'm going to have Michigan as my other team playing Kansas. So then who of those two do you have in the championship game against? I have an all uh, Big Ten championship game, Michigan, Illinois. No bias there whatsoever. I don't know (laughs) what you're talking about. What about you? So for me, out of the West, I have Gonzaga. They've been the most consistent team all year. The only place that they've lacked is three-point. They shoot, what, I believe 36%, somewhere around there from the three-point line, which I think is going to come to bite them back when they face Florida State, who comes out of the East, because Florida State is a sneaky good offensive team. Their offensive rebounding with Raquan Gray, he's so good at crashing the offensive board and getting it. And especially in a March Madness where offensive rebounding can win you games, with, especially with the sneaky hot offense like Florida State has, I think that they have the capability to upset a lot. Not to mention that they're also the top team at opponent field goal percentage because of their big man, Balsa Kopravika. I don't know if I said that right. But him in the paint, he's done a really good job. And especially against a Gonzaga team that can't shoot the ball, if they secure the paint in that final four game, I don't see a way that Gonzaga can't get themselves back in the game shooting three-pointers. So that's a big issue, especially when you get down, but they haven't had to do that since they don't play anyone. So I think that in that final four coming out of that side, Gonzaga, Florida State, Florida State goes to the championship game. On the other side, I obviously have Baylor because I have them winning it all. And out of the Midwest, I have West Virginia. Because West Virginia, they're just a good all-around team, which is what you want when you want to make a deep run in March. The only problem that I see with West Virginia is that they have trouble guarding the post, which can be a worry if Illinois gets there. With Coburn in the paint, that can be an issue. But I just think they're just a a good all-around team. And in March, that's what you want. And yeah, I mean, that's my final four. So now we get into the Cinderella teams, which is my favorite part about March Madness. The last Cinderella we had... Loyola Chicago, obviously, Sister Jean, 11 seed, making it to the Final Four. Who are your few teams to watch out for that can make Cinderella runs? First team I want to talk about is, I said it already, Wisconsin. They're way underseeded. That, that's that's a, a four seed in the nine spot. I think that they'll beat UNC. I think they'll beat Baylor. And the Sweet 16, even potentially an Elite Eight game for them. Another one that this is this is a, a I think a super interesting team to watch is Ohio. They got a I don't remember his name, but their point guard, fantastic player, almost beat Illinois in Champaign this year by himself. I think that that team is scary, scary good for a 13 seed. And I don't know about Final Four because they'd have to go through Gonzaga, but Elite Eight definitely a possibility for that team. The guard is uh, Jason Preston. He put up 31 against Illinois. They only and to Illinois only won by two. They are, and especially with Virginia, we don't know who's going to be playing. They haven't said due to COVID who's going to be in or out. So that's going to be interesting to see come game time who's actually playing for the Cavaliers. Because again, if they're missing some key players, I don't see how Jason Preston can't just go off again for 30-something points and lead Ohio in the upset over Virginia. And another another interesting game right there to watch too, I think, is UCSB. I think they'll beat Creighton pretty easily, honestly. I think Creighton's way overseeded, and UCSB is a fantastic defensive team. They can shut down this Creighton team. They can make a sneaky run. A conference player of the year, I think his name is, uh, his last name is J- McLaughlin. Ja'Cory McLaughlin. 
exactly. Corey McLaughlin, what a player. I think that UCSB Ohio is going to be a 12-13 matchup right from the start. And I agree. I have that in my bracket. Also, Creighton just got destroyed by Georgetown in the Big East championship game, and that has to be demoralizing as a program. It wasn't even close. They never had a shot from the beginning. And then to come in against another tough defensive team, I I mean, I agree with you. I think UCSB Ohio is going to be – even that matchup alone is going to be a really good game. I personally have UCSB beating Ohio just because defensively, I think they have a shot at slowing down Jason Preston and then, of course, losing to Gonzaga because it's Gonzaga. In addition to the two that you said, UCSB and Ohio, I think St. Bonaventura is a sneaky team. They're really, really good defensively. I think if they get past LSU, that they can take down Michigan. Michigan, of course, they're missing Isaiah Livers, who was their second best player. And then St. Bonaventura defensively, they're just so good. They're one of the top teams in opposing field goal percentages. I just think the destruction that they can have on the defensive end can propel them to beat a one seed. Because in the East and Midwest, I have both one seeds going out in the round of 32. The other team, too, I think can make a sweet 16 run. The Ramblers of Loyola, Chicago. They're back. Sister Jean is going to be at the games. I think they can do what they did again in 2018. They shoot the ball really well. They shoot over 50% from the field. They now have a big in Cameron Krutwig. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Who They run their whole offense through. And that's the only reason I think they can beat Illinois. Because with Coburn, I think that he can shut down Coburn. That their offense really can't do that much. Especially in the paint. And then as soon as Loyola gets ahead and they start hitting their threes like they did against Georgia Tech, goodbye, Illinois, in the round of 32. Here's the only problem. Krutwig is six foot nine and Coburn is seven foot two. Krutwig is 225 and Coburn is uh, 275. The other thing, too, is that Coburn has the footwork of a ballerina. This dude can spin around anyone. He made every single defender in the Big Ten look silly this year. He's hard to stop. And Saying that Illinois' offense is based off of Kofi Coburn is comical when you think that the the player of the year candidate is uh, Io DeSumnu. And they also got Curbelo and Trent Frazier and the endless list of players who can go get a bucket. But the one problem with Illinois, I agree, they can't shoot outside. They are a two-point shooting team. If you're playing a team that hits a bunch of threes, which could be Loyola Chicago, you could run into trouble if you're trading three for two every possession. It's similar to Gonzaga where if they get behind at the end of games and they need to start shooting threes, I don't see a way they claw their way back in just shooting threes. So now let's jump to NFL free agency. And as a Cardinals fan, boy, am I happy. We kick it off, J.J. Watt, two years, 23 bill. Did we overpay a little bit? Who cares? <laughs> we need Who cares? With that, yeah, that defensive line now with Watt, Marcus Golden, Chandler Jones, disgusting. Because we also, speaking of that, re-signed Marcus Golden, which is I wanted. I love Hassan Reddick, but we weren't going to be able to afford him. We had to let him walk. We stack up the O-line with re-signing Kelvin Beecham and trading for Rodney Hudson, who before this happened, I texted my brother. I said, the two moves we have left. This was right after I found out that we signed AJ Green. I said, the two moves we have left. Sign Matt Prater, because we were linked to Matt Prater and we need a kicker, because God knows that Zane Gonzalez is awful. I hate him. I went to the Miami Dolphins game this year and watched him shank a 45-yard field goal to send it into overtime, which I have done in real life. I'm not saying it's easy, but if you're an NFL kicker, anything inside of 50, you should be able to make 100% of the time. That's why I'm happy we get Matt Prater. But then we give up just a third-round pick for a former Pro Bowl center and Rodney Hudson. 
and we get also a seventh rounder back. I mean, that's beautiful. I don't know how you beat this Cardinals offseason right now. And again, AJ Green, that's now D Hop and AJ Green on the outside. And if we re sign Fitz to like a vet minimum, Fitz in the slot. If not, it's Christian Kirk in the slot. I don't see how this team at least doesn't make the playoffs because at the end of the day, the NFC West comes down to Rams Cardinals. Yeah, this this offseason is almost unmatched from anything I've ever seen. I mean, is there any are there any negatives? I mean, the, the question is, what do the Cardinals still need from the draft? Because there's they don't have the money to go throw stuff at other players. What can they get from the draft that'll help this team? Corners, corners, and corners. We have no corners. That is the only thing we're missing. It was our issue last year. We let Patrick Peterson walk, which I'm happy about. You know, I loved him in Arizona, but this past season, he was awful. He got beat every single time, so many PIs, and I'm hoping Patrick Sertain falls to us at 16. The other position I think we're missing is tight end, which in some miracle world where Pitts falls to us at 16, which is not going to happen, but if, if somehow he does, I love him in a Cardinals jersey. Yeah, Pitts is not going to, but I could see Sertain at 16. I think some other interesting things to look at are maybe even later round corners. I mean, he had a, a terrible year this year, but Sean Wade out of Ohio State. I mean, he's a good player. Didn't have a great year, but he's a good player. Shakur Brown out of Michigan State. Cameron Bynum out of Cal. There's some good players that are like third, fourth round picks. that could develop into decent starters for a team that just lost their best corner Vikings. To another good sneaky team, the Washington football team has made some moves. They got Fitzmagic at QB1, which I love for that team. And I love, too, the signing of Curtis Samuel to now pair with their offense, which looks scary because, you know, scary Terry. You get Curtis Samuel, Logan Thomas, Antonio Gibson, and Fitzmagic. What more do you want? The only weakness I see with this offense is their offensive line can be shaky, especially with injuries, but Fitzmagic turning the ball over. If he can manage to not turn the ball over, with the defense that they have, I don't see how they don't easily win the NFC East. The one thing about their defense is that, I mean, obviously they have Chase Young and company on the D-line, but I don't think their linebacking core is all that good. I think that they struggled with a lot of missed tackles this last season. They haven't really added anyone there. I think that they're really focused on scoring the ball and just hoping their D-line and secondary will cover. It might work out for them, but it might not. You never know. And how do you feel as a Bears fan that Mitch Trubisky is now a Bill? He's gone. Your quarterback room is the redhead rocket himself, Andy Dalton, and Nick Foles. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I want Mitch back. I, I still think Andy I, Dalton still has some magic left in the tank. How many games did he win with the Cowboys last season? One. The Cowboys, top to bottom, have a better roster than the Chicago Bears. And they played in the worst division in the entire NFL. And Andy Dalton won one game. Mitch Trubisky brought the shit-ass Bears team to the playoffs, and Andy Dalton won one game. Are you telling me that you'd rather have him than Mitch Trubisky, a guy who already knows the office? And yeah, he's terrible. But so is Andy Dalton, and clearly so is Nick Foles, and he got benched for Trubisky, too. And the thing with the Bears, too, GM, Ryan Pace, awful. They just bad i have nothing positive to say about him and i can't remember the trade that they offered to seattle but it was like three first round picks a third round pick two starters for russell wilson i'm sorry but russell wilson's not worth your entire first round picks for the next decade you already gave up four for cleo mack are you really going to give up three more for russell wilson plus two starters which are probably going to be david montgomery and some other probably cleo mack knowing ryan pace russell wilson's good he's not worth your entire draft capital and team for the next 10 years the raiders they signed Kenyon drake they also signed mark ingram and they still have josh jacobs but it's going to be interesting to see how much each plays because i think either they keep mark ingram as just a backup in case of injury or they cut him 
they did get him for really cheap, but you signed Kenyon Drake to a big deal. So I don't see the point in keeping Mark Ingram around. You also have to remember that this is the Raiders we're talking about, and the decision they make will probably be the wrong one. John Gruden has not done a good job with that team so far. They're now dismantling their O-line, which as a Cardinals fan, thank you. But I don't understand why that was one of the best parts of their team. Once again, no matter what the Raiders do, it'll probably be the wrong choice. So now we go across the pond to the Premier League with City sitting 71 points with, I believe, eight games left. 14 points clear of my boys United. We still have a game to play. So if we win, we then go up to 11 points behind. The only thing is, is that with eight games left and Man City being the best team in the world right now, there's no way we catch up. We were their only loss since November. That is insane. To have that good form for that long. I don't know what Pep Guardiola has been saying or been feeding these guys, but they just keep winning no matter what. I don't want to call it, but we should call it. I think that City's going to win. I think that United is relatively safe in the top four. I think that the race for the top four, however, is much, much more intriguing title race because it's over. I think the very interesting race is now between West Ham, Chelsea, and maybe even Liverpool can fight back up to get that fourth spot for the Champions League next year. I, I think Liverpool's about that and out. They don't have a center back. They don't have a lot of things. They barely beat Wolves, and they didn't even deserve to win that game. I think Liverpool's pretty much down and out. West Ham is scary, but they have to play Arsenal, Leicester, Chelsea, Everton. They still have to play all four of those teams remaining in the season. Chelsea and Leicester are not going to want to drop points to West Ham. The other thing to think about, too, is that they have to catch Chelsea, and Chelsea conceded two goals in 13 games on Thomas Tuchel and one of them was an own goal I don't think that Chelsea are going to drop the points to let West Ham sneak in and I don't think Leicester could the top four race is going to be close but I just I don't see West Ham being able to make that run with a West Ham team that's been playing really good there is a shot that if Leicester starts dropping points because again they do have tough matchups they have to go against United the, the, I mean the top two teams so that right there is a potential six points gone that is Plus the have to play West Ham and Chelsea too that's up yes, to 12 which, points those games Ham. too are going to be very key for when West Ham plays Chelsea. If it is still a three-point gap between the two, I mean, you guys will still be ahead on goal difference, but then the pressure's on. I mean, the pressure's on now. The pressure will stay on. If Chelsea continue to be unbeaten, they can't miss the top four. And how about the fact that in March, we are saying West Ham is fighting to be in contention for European football. You know, I always saw the top three teams in London were uh, Chelsea, then Tottenham and Arsenal. But I guess it's now Chelsea, then West Ham, then Tottenham and Arsenal. I don't know what David Moyes has done with this team. I mean, I get how he's done it. He's built it from within, besides Lingard. He's got Mikel Antonio who's playing amazing, Thomas Wojciech and Declan Rice. All of them have just been playing amazing. And the whole team just seems like they're playing with aggression, which West Ham, when they face top teams, they normally don't play with aggression. They kind of sit back and wait, but now they're attacking. And that's why they're winning. It's interesting because West Ham has basically said, we're the new Liverpool. We're going to come out and we're going to try and dominate which I love because who would have said at the beginning of the year, West Ham's going to fight for top five. Yeah. And I think West Ham too. I think it, I think it really starts with Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek because they're starting the press. They're winning the ball back high up the pitch and then they're getting it out to the wings fast. Jesse Lingard's come in and been fantastic over the last four or five games, but the whole season has been Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek dismantling teams from midfield. The problem is, as we saw against United on Sunday, 
when they start playing teams that also have really good midfields, obviously Bruno, Scott McSauce, and Fred, they're not going to let Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek eat them alive. And then when you get to teams like Chelsea with N'Golo Conte and Mateo Kovacic. But when you get to teams like Leicester, I mean, they have Harvey Barnes, they have James Madison, but those are two attackers. I mean, they have Wilfred Didi, but is he by himself enough to stop the press of Suchek and Declan Rice? I think that the top four is going to come down to Leicester and West Ham more than it will. Chelsea. Right, I think Chelsea is going to be closer to third and Leicester and West Ham bottom for that last spot. And it was good to see Angolo in the starting lineup again against Atletico. I don't remember how long it had been, but it's been a while since we got to see Angolo out there smiling, running around. The 90th minute counterattack goal, he sprinted box to box in the 90th minute faster than Pulisic, who came on 15 minutes before, which is insane because he just played the entire game. And faster than Emerson, who scored the goal, too. N'Golo Conte, one of the best in the world. Finally coming back into form after being injured a lot this year. He's played a couple games under Tuchel, but he was on the bench for the last two for some rest. And you can see why he was rested. What a performance against Atletico. What a performance for Chelsea as a whole against Atletico. No Mason Mount. Thiago Silva's been hurt for a month, and they still made Atletico look like a mid-table team in the Prem. It wasn't even close. And I love the video of Thiago Silva, Jorginho, and Mount just going nuts in the stands when Emerson scored that goal to just seal it. And then I felt bad for Luis Suarez because he should not have been subbed off. And when it zoomed in on him, throwing his shin guards on the stairs, you could tell he was mad. I feel bad for Jao Felix because he was the most likely the entire game of getting a goal. But the way that Simeone had him playing, he wasn't getting chances to create a shot, go score. I don't know what Atletico were doing. I don't know what they were thinking, but it wasn't effective. The other teams in the Champions League, City have done what they've done all year. They easily won. Bayern, Lewandowski, five goals or more in nine consecutive Champions League seasons. That is insane because these are the best teams in the world that he's going against. He still manages to score, which blows my mind to be that consistent for that long. It's really what he does best, just getting in position to score and then scoring every single time. And then to another sneaky team, Real Madrid. I saw a thing on Leecher Report Football that they have not been eliminated in the Champions League since 2015 with Sergio Ramos in their lineup. That's now That's six true. years where when he is playing, they don't lose. For in 2015 through 2016 and 17, they had Cristiano Ronaldo. In 2018, too, Cristiano Ronaldo. They lost in 2015 in the quarterfinals or semifinals because Ramos was suspended. But they didn't win the first leg of that series, and they lost the second when Ramos was suspended. And then they won the next three years with Cristiano Ronaldo. They lost the next season, the season that Liverpool beat Tottenham. They lost because Ramos was hurt. And then last season, they lost because Ramos was suspended. And so I get that they haven't lost with Ramos out there, but it doesn't really mean that they've been in winning positions before he went out. And so I think that if Ramos plays both legs, I don't think they can beat City. I don't think they can beat Bayern. I don't think they can beat Chelsea. I don't think they can beat PSG. Porto, I think they can beat Dortmund. That would be an interesting matchup. And then Liverpool, I think anybody could beat Liverpool right now. Liverpool of all the teams, I don't see them moving on. They just haven't been informed. Defensively, they don't have a center back. Even up top with Firmino, Sala, and Mane, they don't have any confidence. 
they and they're not take, scoring. Diego Jota has been the best player up top. And if you told me that at the beginning of the year, I would have laughed in your face. So then we go below to the Europa League, where my boys and Paul Pogba comes back from injury after being out months. Takes him three minutes to score. I know that everyone's saying, why did we pay Paul Pogba so much? He barely plays. I don't care because he comes on the field and wins us the game. And throughout the rest of the game, he was the best player on the field by far. Wasn't even close. Everyone else just looks dead. Paul Pogba comes on the field. Energy. The thing is that after the goal, he looked really, really good. That goal, it was a little bit lucky for the ball to fall at his feet right there. But the finish was crazy. He didn't even move. He just hit it one time into the back of the net. Great finish from Pogba. I don't want to say it's a classic Pogba performance, but he looked pretty, he looked pretty good. But then we have one of the biggest shocks today in the Europa League. Dinamo Zagreb, led by Orsic, getting a hat trick to knock out Jose Mourinho and Tottenham. Tottenham looked awful, and that's a compliment. I mean, how does a Jose Mourinho team, a team that invented putting 11 players between the ball and the goal and not letting the other team get an attempt, how does that team lose a 2-0 lead on away goals? In London, at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, we give up three, three goals to Orsic to lose. I think it's the same at what happened with Jose Mourinho at United, where the team isn't built to play his style of soccer. When you have Harry Kane up top, you have Lucas Mora, you have Bale, you have Lamella, who's been playing amazing the past few games with his amazing Rabona goal. But that team is built... Amazing red card. That team's built to possess the ball and attack. And that's not who Jose Mourinho is as a manager. They started playing amazing at the beginning when Jose Mourinho took over, similar to United, because the team wasn't playing as strong competition and they were able to just easily execute Jose Mourinho's tactics. Now, when they face the top teams, it doesn't work because those top teams, when you invite them to come attack, they're going to attack and they're going to score. The keeper for Zagreb played amazing because Tottenham should have scored at least two to three times. And he made some incredible saves, especially what 114th minute Bale, where he came flying across the goal to save. Bale should have scored that one thing about Mourinho too is I think this Tottenham team could be built to play his style but their central center backs Sanchez the Colombian Eric Dyer their back four are not what Jose Mourinho need to actually sit and park the bus Tottenham has a lot of pace up front but they don't have the defensive capabilities to play Mourinho's style so unless he's given more time to build his team which I don't think he should be to be fully honest and Tottenham are gonna stay dead in the water the other games in the Europa League, I mean, Arsenal just handled business. It looked shaky, but they really just looked comfortable the entire game. Ajax continued to dominate young boys. Rangers, their reign came to an end. They haven't lost since before November. They haven't lost in months, and they lost today. Got red carded on a disgusting, disgusting challenge from their striker on the Slaha Prague goalkeeper. Rangers did not deserve to win the game. They didn't win the game. It's crazy that their win streak went on for that long and they lost to a team like Slavia Prague. That's not great. Slavia Prague's team is built to win the Czech League every year, but not really compete in Europe. But let's go on to the NBA. The NBA where my sons were winning games. We're second in the West, two and a half games back. We just got in the P.J. Tucker deal, getting Torrey Craig for cash considerations, which is really just to add depth. I love our team chemistry. Monty Williams has done a great job coaching this team. DeAndre Ayton has not played good. So what do you do? You ride the high hand of Dario Saric. You bench DA. 
The only thing I'm worried about is Booker and CP3 haven't played that well together. I feel like the reason the team has done great is because McHale has gotten better. Cam Johnson has done amazing. Crowder's been decent. And Frank Kaminsky off the bench has done a great job. That's the only thing I'm worried about, especially come playoff time, where I don't see us getting past the Western Conference Finals. I, I mean, I think that CP3 is the MVP candidate, or should be at least. He's having a really, really nice year. The problem is Booker's not getting the ball in his hands as much as he likes. It's kind of Chris Paul's fault because Chris Paul is the point guard. He wants to pass. He wants to make the plays. And that doesn't always mean that the ball will be in Devin Booker's hands, which is kind of like how he wants to play. Plus, he has the Kardashian-Jenner curse going for him. Just overall a bad combination. And then we've got the top team in the West, the Jazz, who I have one comparison to that Jazz team. And it's the 2014-2015 60-win Hawks. They've been playing amazing regular season. I get that. But come playoff time, I don't see how in a seven game series, they get past a healthy Lakers. They get past a healthy Clippers. I just don't see a way because it reminds me of where the 2014-2015 Hawks team basically glided their way into the conference finals and met the Cavs and LeBron and got swept, which I think is what their ceiling is again. I get that they've been playing amazing. Donovan Mitchell has been playing great. The COVID man himself, Rudy Gobert, has been setting them picks, but I just don't see a way that they get to the NBA Finals. It's a really interesting team, but what about the 2014-15 Golden State Warriors who beat those Cavs in six games? And this is the pre-KD days, you know, you got Curry, Clay, and Draymond. How is that that much different from this team? You got Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, and Rudy Gobert, a defensive center, and two guys in the front court who can score points like crazy, and some really, really good team chemistry and team basketball. The only issue I have is when they come up against a LeBron, they come up against a Kawhi and a PG-13 together. I don't see defensively how they're going to stop that team. The other issue I have with the Jazz is they struggle in the playoffs. I get that the bubble was the bubble, but they choked that series to the Nuggets. They should have won that series, but they didn't. And even then, just throughout the past few years with Donovan Mitchell running that team, they've never made a deep run in the playoffs. And I get that they're playing amazing in the regular season, but regular season is irrelevant come playoff time. And I don't think that this team is going to be able to thrive come the playoffs. I tend to agree. Personally, I think that the best team in the West is still the Lakers, but I don't think that they're even in the best three teams in the NBA because the Brooklyn Nets, the Philadelphia 76ers, and to some extent, the Milwaukee Bucks are tearing people to shreds. I mean, let's start with Brooklyn. I kind of have a soft spot for them just because of their head coach being Steve Nash, son's as, legend. As do I. And and I feel bad because I know I shouldn't, but I love Steve Nash. I end up having that little soft spot for them. Katie, Kyrie, James Harden, just those three by themselves are good enough to beat every team in the NBA. Three on five. That team is scary. Especially James Harden just got a 40-point triple-double last night. The interesting thing with that team is going to be their starting lineup. Because I think that they should run Kyrie at the one, Harden at the two, Joe Harris at the three, Durant at the four, and then either have DJ or Jeff Green at the center, and then bring Blake Griffin off the bench because he's a guy that wants the ball in the post and is going to dominate having the ball. And I feel like if you have Kyrie, Harden, and Durant on the floor, he's the fourth option on that team. And that's obvious. So why not keep it so you can spread the floor with Joe Harris, keep one guy in the paint with DeAndre Jordan, even Jeff Green can space the floor, bring Blake off the bench and have Blake as the big guy presence off the bench who will carry a pretty weak bench squad because they basically gave away their entire bench. 
Yeah, that team is going to have to be able to stay healthy through the playoffs and stay rested as much as possible. It's tough for them because they're going to have to come up against teams like the 76ers who are having a really, really good year. I think that right now the 76ers are one of the best two teams in the NBA. I don't know if they'll stay that way. I think the Clippers are going to start playing better. I think the Lakers are probably start playing better as well. But there's just a lot of good teams in the East that can push that team to six or seven games. Can the Nets stay rested? Can the Nets stay healthy to win those games, to win those series? That has been an issue because those those big three haven't played that many games together because one of the three is out with injury. Recently, Kyrie's been out and Durant's been out. It's going to be interesting to see how well that team plays together are healthy. I think Steve Nash will manage to keep them all happy with getting the ball. Another scary team in the East, the Pacers went healthy. Look very, very scary and a tough team to beat in seven. You got Brogdon at the one, Lavert at the two, who just now came back from the kidney problem that he had. If TJ Warren comes back healthy. He's at the three. And then Sabonis and Turner, who've been playing amazing. Not to mention off the bench, you got UA grad TJ McConnell with nine steals and a half right before the All-Star break. The Holiday Brothers, Dougie McBuckets, Jeremy Lamb. The only issue I see with the Pacers, they don't have a backup big. They've got Goga Bedatse. I think that's how you say his last name. That's the only weakness I really see with this Pacers team, which I think them and the Knicks are two scary teams that in a seven-game series can make it a series against some of the top teams. Yeah, I think the Pacers are a really, really nitty gritty team, but they have to make the playoffs first. And the same thing with the Knicks. I mean, even same thing with the Bulls. Like these three teams all have the potential to be a disruptor in the Eastern Conference, but they have to make the playoffs first, which means consistency. None of those three teams can consistently go in and win a game. The other thing too is that right now they're ahead of a team like the Raptors, but the Raptors haven't had four starters for the last two weeks. What happened? They started playing well and COVID hit. What happens when Pascal, Kyle Lowry, OG come back? And that team starts looking really, really good again. Can they stay ahead of the Raptors? For the Knicks, for the Pacers, there's going to be a lot more problems created in the very near future. And can they start playing consistently well? So now we're going to finish off the first ever episode of Total BS with our NBA MVPs. So who do you have right now as your front runner? There's three guys who I think deserve to be leading the conversation, but I don't think any of the three will actually be in the conversation because of one thing or the other. But I think the three guys in the NBA that most deserve MVP are, in no particular order, Jimmy Butler, Stephen Curry, and Chris Paul. Hear me out here. I, I know it sounds crazy, but Jimmy Butler is very quietly averaging almost a triple-double, 28-7, and seven, something like that. Steph Curry, I mean, we've seen him play. He's been fantastic this year, game in, game out. And he's single-handedly carrying this Warriors team to compete for a playoff spot. Wiseman's playing poorly. Draymond's playing poorly. Clay is out. The Warriors are a half game out of the playoffs. Curry is single-handedly carrying that team. And Chris Paul, as I said earlier, he's having a great year. The Suns are the two seed. Chris Paul's leading that team. Uh, I don't think any of those three guys are getting the credit they deserve, but both based on the phrase most valuable player, I don't see anybody more deserving than the three of them. I personally have none of those three even in the conversation. I have Jokic and Bede. You can make a case for LeBron, but the issue I have with that is you can make a case every year for LeBron and Harden. I, I had Embiid as my front runner, and then he just got hurt and is now going to miss some time. So I think that's going to put Jokic ahead because Jokic, like Butler, is almost averaging a triple-double. He's somewhere in the 20s for points. 11 boards and eight, seven assists, somewhere in that range. 
And then you have Harden, who's been playing amazing. If he had been with this Nets team the entire season, he would easily be the front runner for me. No one can guard him. He just had a 40-point triple-double, which is unbelievable. I believe he's now second behind Russell Westbrook already for most triple-doubles this season, and he's basically played half the season. You've got Embiid and Jokic, who've been dominating down low, just dominating for their team. They're the reason their teams are winning. LeBron, LeBron is LeBron. You put LeBron on any team, they get better. The only issue is the Lakers have been struggling without AD, and LeBron has also been struggling without AD because his supporting cast is not that good. I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to who's healthy, because if Embiid has to miss a lot of time, I think Jokic is going to run away with it, just because he's so good and so consistent the entire year. He never really has a bad game. I think that he personally deserves the MVP most likely this year. But at the same time, if Harden keeps playing the way he does, I don't have a problem with them giving it to Harden. What about a guy like Damian Lillard? That one's interesting because the only problem that I have with Damian Lillard is defensively, he's a big liability. I get offensively, he's amazing and he is. But defensively, if I'm a team in the playoffs, I'm going at him because I want to get him fouled out. And that's an issue that he's had his whole career is in the playoffs. Yeah, he can get a bucket. But at the same time, you got to be able to defend, which he can't. And that's a similar case with Curry, where in the playoffs, come playoff time, I'm getting the pick and roll. I'm switching Curry onto my best player and I'm driving at Curry. Like we always hear, Steph Curry can't do this. Steph Curry can't do that. Yet he consistently proves that he can. So I don't think that Dame Lillard or Steph Curry or, or Jimmy Butler or Chris Paul are in the conversation, but I think that they are, I mean, Jokic is having a great year. I think that they're having better years than Embiid. I think they're having better years than Harden. I, I think that they will not get the recognition they deserve. That is it for our first episode of Total BS. We got into March Madness, Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, NBA, NFL free agency, still more to come. I had a lot of fun doing this. I hope you did as well. To all the listeners, to all the listeners, I hope you guys enjoyed and we'll catch you guys next time.